Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, as you think about where you're going to cast your vote, does strategic voting come into it? Remember during the pandemic, we talked about how people were drinking more? Well, now we have the medical evidence that, yeah, they were. And an update on polling in terms of how we feel about the leaders of the major parties. What are their favorability ratings? Not great news for Aaron O'Toole or Justin Trudeau, but Jugmeet Singh's riding high. Dr. Larry Savage, a professor of labor studies at Brock University. Dr. Savage, thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. No problem. Good morning. So when we talk about strategic voting, let's just break down exactly what we mean here. Basically, it means not necessarily voting for your favorite candidate, but voting to try and prevent another candidate from being elected? That's exactly it. You're you're substituting your sincere preference for a candidate you think is best positioned to defeat the candidate you prefer the least. Okay, so, and uh, (laughs) it's an interesting approach, but we know what happens. It happens all the time. Um, How does it usually play out in Canadian politics? If we take a look at strategic voting and the impact it's had on previous federal election campaigns, what can we find out? Sure. So I've spent the last 10 years studying strategic voting and specifically union-backed anti-conservative strategic voting campaigns. And so that usually takes the form in most ridings of having uh, these organizations try to convince voters who are sympathetic to the NDP to switch their vote to the Liberals because of the sense that that party is best positioned to defeat the conservative candidate who who they don't want elected. Although in some ridings, it also means backing new Democrats who are best positioned to defeat conservatives. But by and large, in most ridings in the country, it means backing Liberals. Um, And how has that worked out? Has it been effective, or in some cases, has it actually hurt? Well, look, I think the bottom line is that there is very little evidence that these campaigns are effective. And in some cases, they're actually counterproductive. Um, You know, we can take, um, I can give you an Alberta riding, for example. Uh, Edmonton Centre, for example, is a good example where in uh, 2015, Unifor, which is a union that is very much committed to strategic voting, they endorsed uh, Alberta Federation of Labor President Gil McGowan in that riding, who was running for the NDP, and this was part of their broader anti-conservative strategic voting effort. Uh, Now, as we know, at the start of that campaign, all the parties were kind of even in the polls, but NDP hopes faded rather quickly in 2015, and Justin Trudeau's liberals surged in the polls in the second half of that campaign. On Election Day, the liberals won in Edmonton Center, but just barely over the conservatives. And so, in other words, in retrospect, the union's strategic voting campaign in Edmonton Center, which was all about backing the NDP candidate, was entirely counterproductive because they were encouraging people to vote for the third-place candidate, and in the process, they nearly helped hand the seat over to the Conservatives. But I remember back in that campaign, union leaders talking about they were responsible for the defeat of Stephen Harper. 
Yes, of course, uh, that is true that union voters made that claim. But I think there's very little evidence um, that that's true, because even when Harper lost in 2015 and the, the liberals swept to power, the evidence actually showed that strategic voting campaigns weren't a determining factor in districts that had been targeted by groups for that purpose. And in some cases, uh, of course, like in Edmonton Center, those strategic voting campaigns backfired entirely. There's influence on voters from the candidates themselves in this area, right? I can think of politicians who say a vote for this person is a vote for, uh, is a wasted vote. Or, you know, if you want to make sure that we don't end up with this kind of politics, then you need to cast your vote here. Anywhere else, it's a wasted vote, and it's just going to ensure they win. So politicians recognize that they can sort of drive that wedge in and encourage people to vote strategically. Well, exactly. And I think this only leads to confusion, because in some writings, anti-conservative organizations can't actually agree on who the strategic vote should go to. So you might have a liberal or an NDP candidate self-proclaiming themselves as a strategic candidate. And uh, again, you know, mixing these messages so that it's not clear for people. Uh, and the other problem is, I think a lot of people think that voting strategically means voting liberal because the media usually reports on national poll results. We're rarely ever treated with riding level polling data. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, People make incorrect assumptions all the time about the state of their local races based on national-level polling data. So, for example, if you were new to Edmonton-Strathcona, which is the only NDP riding in uh, Alberta, you might look at the polls and think that voting liberal is the best way to stop the Tories because you're looking at a national poll. Of course, you'd be wrong. But the point here is that effective strategic voting requires a very high level of voter education, coordination and awareness that simply doesn't exist in Canada. What about, and this is something that always fascinates me about Canadian politics, is the Conservative Party come together, break apart, come together, break apart cycle that we see over and over and over again. Um, When you're talking about strategic voting, you've now got the Conservative Party of Canada led by Aaron O'Toole, which is the biggest, of course, and has the most support, but always biting at the heels of the major Conservative Party. This time you've got Maverick Party, you've got People's Party of Canada. Um... That seems to be the antithesis to strategic voting. That seems to be actively campaigning to take votes away from the leading conservative party and split it up and disperse it among these smaller parties that have far less likely chance of being voted in. Look, strategic voting happens on the left of the political spectrum. It also happens on the right. You can be sure that if the polls are very close, you're not only going to have liberals encouraging New Democrats and Greens to vote strategically against the Conservatives. But you're also going to see Conservative candidates encouraging People's Party supporters and Maverick Party supporters to get on board with O'Toole. You're going to have these drums of strategic voting in all directions. And again, it can be a big, confusing mess for people because People vote strategically for different reasons. I might want to not vote liberal to deny the minority. Maybe I want to vote liberal because I want to deny the conservatives' victory. Maybe I want to vote conservative because I'm worried that I'll waste my vote on the People's Party. And, of course, that dynamic is different in every single riding. And there are organizations out there who try to put together these websites to inform voters. But a lot of those times, they're being run by partisan 
people who are trying to feed the public information that will support their particular party. And so in the end, given that there's actually very little evidence that strategic voting campaigns are effective, you you um, you might as well just vote for the candidate you believe in rather than try to game the system because it's unlikely that it's going to produce the outcome you're looking for. Yeah, there's a novel idea. <laughs> vote your conscience. Uh, Dr. Savage, thanks so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us. That's uh, Dr. Larry Savage, a professor of labor studies at Brock University. We're going to chat with Dr. Abdel Aziz Shaheen, an assistant professor at the Cummings School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good morning. So we're taking a look at a pretty specific condition, an alcohol-related condition. Just tell us what these stats and these numbers we're going to talk about are based on. Sure. So um, for alcohol uh, impact on the body, it can affect different organs. So we were interested to the study's impact on the liver and the impact of alcohol uh, or high consumption of alcohol on the liver can be um, um, described in two ways, like the long-standing way, the chronic, what we call silent progression of scarring in the liver, and that can uh, show up in months or years. Uh, The other form, which is acute inflammation or sudden inflammation in the liver because the liver is not able to detoxify the uh, toxins or alcohol, um, and then the liver basically shut off. It's kind of like started uh, to to have severe decline in functions, increasing the liver enzymes, and people are very sick. So we studied uh, both conditions, uh, the long-term. We didn't expect to see significant increase uh, because the short-term of the first wave of the pandemic, but we studied the acute form of it, and we found a striking spike of uh, people or Albertans presenting to the hospital with severe inflammation in the liver. Yeah, basically the incidence, the number of cases that you saw uh, presenting in hospital, doubled essentially, right? That's correct. That's correct. So uh, we found, like, we studied all the admissions in Alberta. If you uh, break a bone or you have a labor or any kind of admission. So this condition before the pandemic, in the two years before the pandemic, the average rate, it was around 11 uh, cases per 10,000 admission. After the pandemic, it is 22. And the alarming wasn't only the doubling the alarming feature was from march 2020 till uh, september 2020 every month we saw steady increase of nine percent month after month unbelievable now not only that but the age of the people reporting these problems dropped quite dramatically that's correct um um we started to see changes in the demographics of people presenting with this condition. Uh, before, the average age was around 48-year-olds. Uh, now, they are 43, like five years difference. So younger folks are coming. And the other thing, we also noticed people more coming from rural Alberta. Before, it was around 22% coming from rural areas. Now, it's around 38% of this cohort coming from rural uh, areas. Interesting. Now, this is not a uniquely Alberta phenomenon, right? We've seen this reported in other jurisdictions. 
Absolutely. Um, we are lucky here in Alberta that we can uh, uh, get all the data sources together to find out what is going on, not in real time, but we have a lag of a few months later. In the States, they will need around a couple of years hmm. to identify the nationwide uh, impact on alcohol uh, on the U.S. population. In Europe, I was in a recent conference in uh, Europe, a uh, digital meeting, as all the meetings these days. Of course. Uh, <laughs> and uh, people from um, UK, from France, all talked about the same thing. Wow, interesting. Um, now, could this, when we talk about liver, and, and some of the cases that are coming in, I'm sure, are, are, are treatable and, and, and it's okay, but are we also looking at some long-term lasting health effects? When you're talking about, you know, not the acute phase, but the other one you were mentioning, when, we, when we're getting into that area, I imagine we're, we're looking at transplants or, or worse, I would think, right? Absolutely. Um, and usually when I describe to any uh, patient or individual telling me, what is causing liver problem in Canada or North America? I usually use the uh, um, rule of third. So rule of the, uh, the third uh, of the people with liver problem are from fatty liver, from obesity, diabetes, another third from other conditions such as viral hepatitis, hepatitis C, hepatitis B, and then one third related to higher risk alcohol consumption. So we know that we have a problem with uh, liver uh, or alcohol-related liver problem before. And actually, we were not doing well across North America here and the U.S. because 75% of the people we uh, see in our clinic with alcohol-related uh, liver disease, they already present with the end stage, what we call cirrhosis, which is basically severe scarring in the liver. So... 75% presenting when they are already uh, are in the stage. What we are seeing now is because of that high consumption of alcohol and uh, we are seeing a spike in the acute phase, we are expecting to see a spike in the next months and years to come with the chronic phase, with the alcohol-related cirrhosis. Hmm, okay. Got a couple of texts from listeners as, as we're talking here saying, how do I know if I've got liver problems? What do people, you know, how does this become symptomatic? What do people start to report? When do they realize they've got an issue? That's an excellent point um, because, uh, as I mentioned, we are failing because there is no great communication with primary care physician how to counsel patients. Uh, so the first thing, the uh, anyone see their uh, family doctor or nurse, they should talk about how much alcohol they drink on average per week. Okay. And once you exceed the uh, recommendation for safe drinking, then you may have a, a problem in the liver. And then the second thing, the family doctor or the nurse can order simple lab tests to evaluate the liver enzymes and functions. And based on those tests, they will discuss with the person if they are at risk of liver disease or not. When you mention the safe level of consumption, what is it? So for women, the Canadian recommendation is equal or less than 10 standard drinks per week. Okay. And for men, it is around 15 standard uh, drinks or less per week. And you can't save them all up and have all 15 on Saturday night, right? So we actually, there are multiple studies showing the binge drinking or drinking all at once can cause a significant damage to the liver. 
Doc, thank you so much. Great discussion, great information. I really appreciate it. You are welcome. Have a wonderful day. You too. That's Dr. Abdelaziz Shaheen, an assistant professor at the Cumming School of Medicine. We're going to chat with Daryl Bricker, who is CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Daryl, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Shay. So this time we're going to be talking about the favorability of our leaders and some really interesting stuff. I don't think Jagmeet Singh being seen as the most likable leader is that surprising. That seems to be the tag he carries around. You know, a lot of people say, unfortunately, he's NDP, but I really like him as a guy. But he continues to do very well in terms of how Canadians feel about him personally. Yeah, he does. So of all the federal leaders, uh, Jagmeet Singh is seen as the, the most favorably and has the lowest unfavorable uh, um, assessment as well. So he's a, a plus six, you know, we put those two things together. Yeah. Justin Trudeau's actually still got a, you know, a constituency out there. 41% say they like him, but a heck of a lot more say that they don't. He's become a divisive uh, political character. He's at minus 12. Uh, but the highest uh, uh, in terms of unfavorable and favorable combined is actually Aaron O'Toole's a minus 21. And that's mostly because he's got a big chunk of people, about a quarter of the population, who say they just don't know enough about him to be able to offer an assessment. Which is surprising. I mean, he's he's he hasn't been front and center on the campaign, but he's been doing his virtual town halls and stuff, but he's still carrying around that tag of, I don't know who this guy is. Right. And, and you know, it stands to reason. He's been the uh, the leader of the Conservative Party for over a year now. Yeah, uh, But the problem has been everything that you could normally do prior to this campaign to raise your profile as the leader of a political party was denied him. I mean, he couldn't really tour because of, you know, shutdowns. I mean, virtual things are fun, but, uh, you know, how many people actually attend them? So he was he was uh, struggling to, to get some profile. But in the, in the campaign, he's getting a bit more profile. Yeah. So we'll see if these numbers change over time. What about when we take a look at um, along party lines? I mean, does it do they fall in line with, OK, I'm a liberal, so I like Justin Trudeau? Or is, as you said, he's facing some internal strife, too? No, he's at the moment, he's not. Uh, people who... Uh, who prefer Justin Trudeau, people who say they're voting liberal really like Justin Trudeau, uh, and the same with Jagmeet Singh. Uh, the person who, on that question, doesn't do as well with his own partisans, so as people who, who are voting for their party, is again Aaron O'Toole, where the number is only 67%, where you compare it to Justin Trudeau, he's in the 90s. And again, you know, uh, this is not surprising in that Aaron O'Toole has struggled to, to put together a coalition that doesn't naturally hang together which is, um, you know, Western Canadian people who have a pretty conservative, strong conservative, stronger conservative mm-hmm. bent, and people in the suburbs of Ontario who tend to be a little bit more, not I wouldn't call them progressive conservatives, but, you know, not as uh, not as stride maybe in their views as uh, some of the folks out West. So he's, he's trying to hold something together, uh, whereas Justin Trudeau, his folks are pretty much behind him. The same for uh, Jagmeet Singh. Now, ultimately, this all comes down to what will it mean when people head into the ballot box? What's the issue there? Um, Will people shift their vote because they don't like the leader of the party, or will they still just hold their nose and cast their ballot? Well, they they could, um, and that's the the, the problem that uh, the Prime Minister finds himself in at the moment, which is he is the brand of the party. He has become the Liberal Party. There's no Liberal Party outside of Justin Trudeau, and as Justin Trudeau struggles, the Liberal Party is struggling. Um, uh, To a certain extent, I think uh, Aaron O'Toole's uh, the party brand has helped him. You know, the identity of what a, a conservative would do if they were in government has helped him, has raised his profile a little bit. We'll see if he can, you know, uh, uh, tack off of that. And then Jagmeet Singh, I would say, again, you know, uh, NDP, 
Um, people are more affiliated with the brand than they are with a particular leader. But it's really hard to uh, um, uh, be attracted to a political party if you really don't like their leader. Um, so I think, you know, the two things work in concert. They, they're complementary. Interesting stuff. I mean, we're, we're seeing... Try and explain how the Conservatives have seen such a bounce then, Daryl. If if, they're, if it's not translating in the leadership itself, um, it seems like the Conservatives did really well, especially in the first week. How does he not see the same similar sort of bounce? Well, to a certain extent, it's, it's, it's not so much about what the Conservatives have been doing. It's about what the Liberals have been doing. So if you look in our polling at what's changed, it's not that the Conservatives have jumped into a dramatic lead. It's that the Liberals have lost a little bit to both the NDP and the Conservatives. So really what the focus has been for the public in the first week and a bit of the campaign, almost two weeks now, is is disappointment with the fact that we're actually in an election campaign and really uh, uh, judging the prime minister harshly mm-hmm. um, because because we're in this situation. And what that's ended up, uh, what's ended up occurring is that there, we've seen a certain peeling away of support to both the NDP and to the Conservative Party. Well, the, well the, I guess the media narrative, because if it's not the, the Liberals that form the government, the, the Conservatives are the, most next, next like, are the most likely next choice. So the focus has been on that. But the Liberals have been losing as much to the NDP as they have to the Conservatives. Interesting. Okay. Daryl, of course, we'll chat again as this campaign goes along, but I appreciate the update today. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Shay. You bet. That's Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.